You're listening to Global Lab from the Bartlett Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis at UCL. At the Global Lab, we like to delve into familiar topics from unfamiliar angles. Today, we look at the other side of St. Valentine, who is best known for being the patron saint of lovers and celebrated each year on the 14th of February. It may come as a surprise that in addition to being the patron saint of loved-up couples, St. Valentine is also the patron saint of beekeepers and he is often represented in pictures with birds and flowers. I spoke to YouTube presenter and beekeeper Maddie Maud about her unbelievable pollinating friends. After the bees, we hear Oliver Marsh talk to architectural designer and urban researcher Julia King, who worked with a group of UCL students to further develop the mobile skip garden space in the middle of the King's Cross development in London. In addition to hearing about bees and urban gardening, Anna Plojaski tells us why you getting romantic is killing us. But first, let's hear from Maddie Mould and her busy bees. My name is Maddie Moat. I am a presenter on YouTube. I make lots of videos about natural sciences. Um, I'm also presenting a new CBB series for little ones, which is just encouraging children to be curious and ask questions about how the world works. But in my spare time, I like to make YouTube videos about beekeeping. You are probably best known as the BBC's Earth Unplugged, Unplugged yeah. YouTube channel uh, presenter. So how did you get into beekeeping? It was actually my mum that got me into beekeeping. She lives out in the countryside in Suffolk and she uh, was friends with some people who were beekeeping and that's how she got introduced to it. And I think for her, beekeeping was her way of giving back and she's always loved the countryside, she enjoys enjoys it mm. and she had the space and the time and she thought this is the thing that I can do to give back to the wildlife that I enjoy so much but also bees are just endlessly fascinating and as soon as she had set up the first hive I then visited home and you know like gave it a go put on a beekeeping suit and I was immediately addicted and I really really enjoyed it so now as much as possible we look after those bees together and now we have uh, well we have more hives and it's just a hobby that we can do together. Yeah. So what what do you find most interesting about bees? Because they they are like social insects. Yeah, they, they, they are little society. Yeah, I, I think I can, bees really impress me. <laughs> it's just it's there is it's so interesting to open up a hive, crack it open, and just see the way they they work and how they just go about their daily lives and how they have this structure where they just know what they're doing. But I think colony structure is particularly interesting. The way they have a queen bee, who she she is the queen bee, and then you have your workers and the drones. Um, and just the worker bees, how they go about their different jobs, whether that's being a guard bee or if it's foraging, uh, the way the forage, the way the bees who come up with pollen and then communicate with the rest of the hive and the way they do this using a dance. Mm. Um, but I would say it's the structure and the way they communicate with each other and they just don't stop working. The saying, you know, you're such a busy bee is yeah. really true <laughs> because bees really do like to be busy and I just, yeah, I find them impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so you mentioned that uh, your the the beehives that you take care mm-hmm. of they are in the countryside. Yeah. Um, and well, you you said your mum had mm-hmm. had space for mm-hmm. the the hives. Right. How how would you usually choose a location for a beehive? Obviously, the availability of space. Yeah. There is, but um, I guess there's some kind of art to it. How to yeah? How to be, I mean, bees location. don't have to be kept in the countryside. They are just as happy in the city. But there are a couple of things you have to bear in mind. Like it's a good you want to have a good six foot clearance, if possible, around the hive so that you can comfortably um, walk around it. But also, bees they kind of need a runway to get mm. into the hive. So you want a good six foot so that they can easily fly into the entrance of the hive and so you don't want to have any obstructions there um you also have to consider temperature as well they like to have sun in the morning but you don't want them to be baking hot throughout the day and you also need to shelter them from the wind slightly so if you can get some shelter from the wind and sunshine then that helps and something people don't often consider is that bees do need a water source um like all animals they need to drink but they don't have any way of storing water as such they do need water near them Um, and there are some instances where there isn't a water source so bees might go to the neighbour's pond or maybe even a swimming pool and that's not good (laughs) so you want to make sure that there is water nearby Um, but they're like a specific type of water something like a lake is a bit too much or a a deep pool of water isn't good because they can drown they prefer to have um, like wet pebbles that they can sort of just sip the water off right. um so in so for example we just have a big bowl of water with some rocks in that they can go and collect that from as well okay so you can you can uh yeah. design little yeah, exactly like a little a little pond yeah. for them, a little bee Drink pond and like, it's bees. amazing how they use it though they collect it on their wings the water and then the bees will line up in front of the entrance to the hive and they'll flap their wings and it helps to cool everything down oh. it's like bee air conditioning mentioned the like one of the amazing things about bees is that that this waggle dance that they do to communicate to each other yeah where to find the good pollen and nectar um but how, how do you as a beekeeper how do you know where your bees go yeah it, it can be really difficult to know actually i think if you have the luxury of having your bees in your own garden or you sort of have access to land then you can see them you can see often there is one particular plant that the bees just really like so we have um, some ivy at home and the bees love the ivy plant and we also live near some uh, rape fields rape Mm -hmm. seed and the bees love that because there is just an abundance of pollen Um, and you can see them you can see them going there but I think if you live in a city and you're not necessarily keeping your bees um in a garden you don't know you don't know where they're getting their 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 sugar from their nectar from but the way honey tastes and the texture of it can give you a clue so early on in the season for us when the bees are foraging mostly on the rapeseed the honey is darker in color and has a really strong taste but also because there's so much pollen present the honey is a lot firmer then later right. on, when they tend to be foraging on sort of more like meadow flowers. But um, apparently in the, in the city, in London, you know, the honey is some of the best because of the sheer variety that the bees have around them with different plants, exotic plants, trees, that actually you get a really lovely tasting honey. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So the taste can give you a clue. Right, yeah. And I guess you can, if you're really determined to find out what pollen you have in the 
in the honey you can get it tested yeah you or, could do yeah you can actually you can put um pollen traps on a beehive some people like to collect some of the pollen that the bees because you can use pollen now for health benefits um, personally, we don't collect the pollen because I don't know the bees need it. <laughs> um, but you can do so. You could be you could collect samples of the pollen from these little brushes that will uh, catch the pollen as the bees go into the hive. Around this time of the year, when it's colder, the colony will shrink right down to maybe. I mean, it, it very much depends, but let's say ten thousand. But in the summer, this will go up to seventy thousand bees. Mm-hmm. Um, in the winter months, all of the boys, the drones, they get kicked out because they're no use over the um, winter months so the colony shrinks in size and then it will start growing again when the weather is good and Mm. there is stuff to be foraged Mm. Mm. so how do they survive over the winter then when the The, growing season is yeah some people actually this this winter has been quite interesting because in the uk anyway just hasn't got that cold Mm. um so surprisingly the bees have been foraging the whole winter um which isn't usual that isn't usual but what would happen is that the colony shrinks in size and the bees main focus in life over the winter is just to keep the queen safe and keep the queen warm Mm. so that's what they'll do and the idea is that they have gone and they've they've foraged their honey they have their food for the winter and the the dream the ideal is that that's just they'll get their food source from the honey within the hive um but what we've had to do this winter is because in the summer we took what we thought would be the surplus honey for us to enjoy. Mm. Actually, when the, you know the winter didn't get cold and the bees were continuing to forage, they started depleting their own food source. So mm. we were having to give them extra sugar syrup to make yeah. sure that they could keep themselves stocked up. But um, yeah, so usually during the winter they just quiet down, keep the queen warm and eat up their honey mm. if it's there. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned that in your garden that um, your bees seem to really like the ivy. Mm, yeah. Do, do you know anything about this kind of uh, bees' food preferences? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think the bees will go where it makes sense for them to go. So if there is an area where there is an abundance of pollen, then that's where they'll go. So there just happens to be a lot of ivy right next to their hives Mm. so that's where they're going to go for it because they're not going to have to waste their energy and there's a lot of it in one place equally I've mentioned the rape fields as Mm. well that's where they're going to go because there's just so much of it and it means that instead of having to fly from flower to flower to flower to flower it's all there it's Mm. all in one place Mm. and there is some evidence to suggest that on a single foraging flight, a bee will prefer, will prefer to stick to one species. Mm-hmm. So instead of going from flower to flower to flower in different species, I'll stick to one. And I think that's just because it makes sense. You know, if you can go to an area where there is a, a dense amount of pollen, you just stick to that one, you get as much as you can, and then you fly back again. Mm-hmm. Um, if the pollen count is low, then I think, you know, they'll just do everything they can to just yeah. get the nectar. Yeah. But in most cases, they will fly to the area where there is the most of one thing. Um, But in in terms of what they prefer, bees definitely like blue and purple flowering plants. They really like purple Mm -hmm. plants. (laughs) But, I mean, there's some amazing stories, though, about the the type of food source that bees will go for. There's this one story from France where there was a beekeeper who was getting blue, green and red honey. You might have heard about this. I remember this one. And they had absolutely no idea why. And turns out the bees were actually flying quite a long distance to an M&M factory, a sweet factory, 
and the bees were foraging on the candy shells, the sweet shells. Um, so they were getting colourful honey, but that wasn't necessarily the closest food source for them, but it's where it was abundant mm. and easily available, so that's where they were going. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Have you ever had to deal with swarming situations? We, we had, we had, I'll be swarmed this summer, actually, oh. um, for the first time, and it, it is intimidating. It is, it's, it's a noisy, intimidating sight, just a massive ball of... <laughs> you know bees um but there is a reason that they're doing it they're not attacking anything their intention isn't ever to hurt anybody what well what tends to happen or in the case of why our bees swarm this year is that a hive just becomes too overpopulated mm. so if you think that in the winter you've only got about you know you've got your ten thousand bees happily in a hive and then all of a sudden in the summer you have loads and loads of bees all around bees will communicate using pheromones and they have to be able to smell the queen. They want to be able to smell the queen's main pheromone. Mm. But if there are just too many bees in this one hive, they will lose sight or they will lose sense of mm. the queen bee. And they'll think, right, that's it. There's too many of us. We feel unsafe. So what will happen is that the queen, the old queen, will take half the hive, let's say, with her and go off to pastures new. So what happens is that a new a new queen will be ready to be raised and then the old okay. queen will take half the hive with her and so a couple of scout bees will be sent out they'll be trying to find a new home for them and in the meantime what's happening in the swarm is you have the queen bee in the middle and all of the other bees are just bundled around her to keep her safe so that's what a swarm is Mm. it's just a bundle of bees keeping the queen bee inside Mm. safe and they will fly to the nearest branch or nearest safe area whilst the scout bees go off and try and find them a new home so that's when you tend to just see a swarm of bees hanging out on a branch. Mm. They're just waiting for the scout bees to come back and be like, hey guys, come with me, mm. I've found somewhere. <laughs> so what did you do with your swarm? Then? We were really lucky actually. So we spotted the swarm right at the beginning. And because of where the bees are, there are plenty of sort of like low hanging branches. They flew straight to a low hanging branch and that's where they were hanging out <laughs> until they found somewhere new to go. So at that stage, we, we it was really useful. We actually had a brand new hive ready to go that didn't have any bees in it yet. Um, and we were able to just place this new hive under the branch. We just tapped the branch. They did. The bees all just fell in. And they were like, brilliant, this will do. Because we were just able to instantly provide them with a safe new home, made sure that they had plenty of sugar syrup around. So they were like, why would we leave this place? This is great. Um, And they stuck around. So we were really lucky to be able to just spot that they had gone and then catch them. But that's not always the case. Apparently they are bee wranglers. Oh yeah, people that go around and will like go catch swarms. That is a profession. Yeah, 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 (laughs) definitely. (laughs) But yeah, you've you haven't luckily had to uh, wrangle your bees to that. No, no, no. I mean, we have actually. I mean, since then the hives have swarmed again, and we don't know where they went. Right. Um, But you know, perhaps they found another beekeeper, (laughs) or maybe they just found a lovely tree. Someone is in, uh, listening to this uh, interview yeah. and and gets inspired and decides they want mm. to do something for the benefit of the bees. Do yeah. you have any tips what people can do? I, I think I think everybody could have even if it's a little pot of flowers and herbs on their windowsill. Everybody can plant some bee friendly or just pollinator friendly plants. 
Um, like bees they love lavender and they love thyme so even just having like a little herb garden on your windowsill is something that you can enjoy but also the bees and other pollinators can enjoy too Mm. and also you can buy really cute insect hotels now or Mm. bee blocks they're just small blocks of wood that have holes in them and these can become great homes for butterflies or even solitary bees Mm. Um, so that's something that anybody could do even if they're living in a flat Mm. But apart from that, I think also buying local honey can really help. So if you can support local beekeepers, whether you're in a city or in a rural area, you can definitely do that. Mm. And just being just just being generally aware and wanting to just spread the message that we need these pollinators mm. <laughs> and they're really important. Mm. If anybody is interested in beekeeping as well, mm. on my YouTube channel, which is just youtube.com forward slash Moat, my name, then I make beekeeping videos. So anybody can go along and watch those. And then the new series is for CBB, so it's for a much younger audience. Yes. But um, yeah, it should be a great new show called Do You Know? Out later in the year. Next up, we'll hear from Julia King, who was interviewed by Oliver Marsh about Urban Gardening Project in King's Cross. All right, so um, my name's Julia King. Um, I'm an architect by training, but I sort of work across multiple fields and I'm currently based at LSE Cities, which is a sort of think tank on, on all issues urban. Um, and I'm actually talking about Skip Garden, which is a project that I was involved with last year when I was teaching a design unit at the Bartlett School of Architecture along with my colleague, Jan Katain. And... Um, to tell you a little bit about the garden itself, um, it's, it's a, it was sort of set up, I think, I think the Skip Garden was set up in 2006, I'm not quite sure actually, and it's run by a woman called Jane Ridderford, and she's got a quite small team for what they do, it's pretty impressive, and somehow Jane, and I'm not quite sure how she did this, but Jane managed to convince Argent, who are... Probably, I mean, I find them one of the most inspired developers in London, mostly because of this project, but, you know, they're huge. And um, somehow this tiny, small community garden managed to find its a place, and a meaningful place, and I mean a physical place, within the King's Cross development project. And Argent are responsible for the overall master plan, and various other contractors are involved in delivering smaller bits. And Jane sort of... I believe managed to get a sort of small piece of land and and she managed to do this by saying actually look let's make this garden movable so that as you develop the site and sites become available and unavailable we can move and it's and it has had three moves since its conception and it's actually the only kind of community group if I can say that operating out of the King's Cross area um, and it caters for a huge range of people from Students from um, some of the sort of um, more marginalised communities around Kings Cross and the wider Camden area, uh, but also it sort of manages to leap and also work with the contractors. And so you get this incredible mix of people coming together around themes like urban planting or bees um, or water harvesting um, in the middle of London. And I actually think it's incredibly unique. So just to sort of bring it back, the, so 
the structure of these, these are literally skips. It's literally a garden in a skip. Yeah. Well, the first garden was just skips, mm. and 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 they had seven different types of, of garden, so seven different types of gardening processes in these seven skips, and they sort of moved around. By the time I met Jane, and they were in their second, second or third site, they had um, a pizza oven. Uh, there was some polytunnels, and they sort of and a couple of containers where the kitchen was and an associated cafe, and so the kind of movable component of the skips. But as they sort of increased their presence in Kings Cross, other structures began to emerge, and it sort of grew very organically. Mm-hmm. I think in response, by in part to. Argent really appreciating what they offered the site, mm-hmm. but also as they grounded and grew with their projects, and sort of um, yeah, they have twilight gardening. I mean, a full range of, of things, um, and expanded what they do with the kitchen um, by the, the introduction of a cafe. Mm-hmm. And um, our involvement came when it was t- two part. We um, Jan and I wanted to do run an architectural design unit where rather than the emphasis on drawing, the emphasis would be on making. And we also wanted to, to test or sort of work within the realm of this idea that making is a process of collaborative engagement with people. Um, and so we wanted there to be this sort of, rather than the idea of this master designer, as this sort of very collaborative on-the-ground process. And since we knew that they were moving, we thought that there was a wonderful opportunity to get involved with the kind of the creation of their last and final site. Our students ended up designing uh, seven of the structures that now exist there, ranging from a kind of movable canopy to uh, outside the kitchen there's a water cleaning reed bed style system, there's also a roof, a water collecting roof and green walls, then there's the largest of structures is a kind of two-story um, structure made out of scaffold boards and reclaimed, well, gifted sash windows, and then there's a chicken coop and one of the London's largest ramberth walls built without cement. Okay. So we, and we were part of that, we did the planning application and yeah, and our students single-handedly built most of the structures that you now see there. And are they sourcing the materials as well? Or? Yeah, I mean Jane was very influential and incredibly helpful in sourcing the materials. Mm-hmm. We had about three kilometres of scaffold boards wow. gifted, uh, very much using Jane's contacts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why so many of the structures that we built use scaffold boards. So it's all reuse bulk materials? Ab- yeah, okay. absolutely. So uh, where their office sits currently, their office was the old office, um, and Ali was the student who took that piece piece on. And the old office sits on top of a structure that he designed and built, which is scaffold boards, and then it's got all these earth bags that were collected from local coffee shops. Okay. Um, and all the earth was also dug out from the site around the corner. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the rammed earth wall was all from dug out from King's Cross. So effectively, foundations for other buildings were then taken, dried, and then repurposed into this huge wall. I suppose there's plenty to get around the yeah. King's Cross. <laughs> yeah, which is actually, it was more complicated than we imagined um, because we also had to dry it. Mm. Um, and so poor Chris, who did that structure, had to sort of shovel tons of earth. And when you're, you're bringing your students into this site, and as you say, they're perhaps more used to, to drawing or you're more used to teaching drawing or that's what we come to expect from some design courses at university, what was the experience like for them, do you know, of actually going into a site and 
creating something yeah. physical that's there? What sort of challenges emerged that weren't anticipated? I mean, yeah, it was definitely challenging, mm. and I think a huge testament to the students who pulled it off. Mm. Because so many things, you know, you draw a straight line on a, on a, on a drawing and, you know, for the ground plane and you assume that it's flat. There was not a single flat surface. And in addition to that, we had bits that were sort of um, d different types of floor surfaces existed on the actual site. It wasn't a sort of uniform material. And, you know, that's hugely challenging. And also things don't happen as you imagine them to. And also they had to design sort of understanding their own physical limitations and then having to kind of get people in to help. Let's say if you're carrying, they had to sort of think of their structures in 20 um, kg bits because anything over that you need help to carry. You know, you can't really manoeuvre that by yourself. Um, so, yes, it was extremely challenging. I also think it was extremely challenging within the kind of pedagogy of the Bartlett School of Architecture where we were asking uh, the, the wider environment to recognise innovation at the kind of level where you're limited by your own constraints and that that's actually a design problem. Um, and when you have to deal with a real client, that that's a design problem. Uh, uh, so... Yeah. But when, when you talk of clients, what are, are these? So you've got Arjun, but presumably there's also things like you need certain kinds of expertise around farming. Or yeah. Well, I mean, our client was Jane and ah. and the team, yeah. the Global Generation team, and I, and actually it was sort of um, in order to deliver the project, it was the first time in history at UCL that UCL acted as principal contractor on a live site. Okay. So we had to get the, our legal team involved. They were talking to Global Generation's legal team. We also had to hire a sort of site manager to oversee it. Ours had to approve the plans, but they effectively weren't, weren't our client. But if they didn't have buy-in, they could have shut the whole thing down yeah. because they own the site. Mm -hmm. So um, that was quite complex. And, um, and it also meant that basically health and safety and risk assessment, something that's, you know, usually I think of as terribly boring, mm -hmm. all of a sudden became incredibly important. So we had to get personnel on board to help with that. Yeah. And um, so that, that was some of, the, some of the more trickier aspects was dealing with the legalities and to make it safe because no one wanted you know, any injuries. And we didn't have any injuries in the end. But, and then in terms of the buildings, we got... Obviously, design liability becomes a problem because I think a lot of people, they look at the structures of Skip Garden and they think that they're sort of temporary. But they have to function for three years because the global generation have this current site for three years. And so, you know, that actually brings you into the world of permanent structures. So the canopy, for example, had to weather a 100-year storm. Mm -hmm. And in order to deal with that, we effectively got the five largest structures, and we got involved with um, five engineering firms in London, and they also gifted their time to ensure that these buildings were safe and to kind of deal with design liability issues. So it ended up being... You know, I, I look at the, the project and see it as this sort of huge amount of collaboration and bringing together and that that's a learning experience for the student yeah. where you have to learn to be at a fulcrum point between, you know, kind of engineers and your own tutors and what the client wants, what you can do, what you want to do also, you know, sort of managing your own ambitions set against the kind of constraints of reality. That, if, if that's all to do with you and the students contributing to the creation of the site, do you have any uh, contribution or do you bring any uh, input into how the site's being used afterwards, the growing of food, the using of the food, things like that? 
So I think we were sort of always operating very much within the realm of being designers, but one of the early tasks that we gave the student was, students was to really engage with projects that are done and the kind of processes that happen. So, for example, one of our students discovered whilst talking to the gardener that plants grow in, better in slightly warmer water. So her whole project revolved around managing to somehow heat water just a little bit to then grow plants. So whilst our students weren't as you know, if they weren't actually there growing plants or, you know, I mean, some of them are still involved with the, the garden still today, but um, we did ask them very much to engage with the processes because that's how you can respond to a client's needs. So we really asked them to look in and look at, go, you know, what, how does this work and how can you contribute and how can this structure help global generation, you know, increase their capacity? Um, so another example is the, the large... Um, uh, the glass house, which are made out of these reclaimed windows, you know that she realised that nighttime gardening was hugely successful, but they had very little space and also very little light. So that whole project was about giving them more space for nighttime gardening and also give, bringing them light um, in a kind of aff affordable way, sort of, sort of low tech. And is I mean, to, just to perhaps end by widening out a bit. Mm. Do you think the global um, global generations and the and this King's Cross mobile skip? Uh, garden has that has that given more more resources that we can use to help perhaps create more sustainable developments within London within cities? Do you think it sets a, a useful precedent either as a learning thing or as or to show developers, big developers, that these things can work? Or is this is it still is there still so many challenges that 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 just we're not going to see more of that for mm. quite a while? Do you think? I mean, I absolutely think it sets an incredible precedent. Mm -hmm. I think the whole garden, and this really got nothing to do with our involvement, but I think what Jane and her team have achieved is, is huge. Um, I do think that the, the garden and what it does and how it contributes to the King's Cross area as a whole really sets a very important precedent. You know, usually sort of Section 106 engagement, sort of Section 106 requirements are often this sort of quite... Um, you know, sort of, yeah, very silly, uh, I'm trying not to swear, <laughs> kind of post-it note participation. Mm -hmm. And here we see something that's genuinely more meaningful, and I think that's very valuable, and, you know, yeah, it needs to, somehow other people, it needs to grow and expand, and, but I believe global generation can do that. <laughs>Weather patterns become unpredictable, erratic and extreme. For us, this manifests in more heavy rain, more droughts, sometimes it's really hot, sometimes it's really cold. We get lots of strong winds, probably lots of snow and also lots of heat waves. The standard unit of how bad stuff is for the environment is grams of CO2 equivalent. Since methane is about 25 times worse than CO2 for the environment and nitrous oxide is about 300 times worse than CO2, Expressing the total emissions in terms of equivalence of CO2 allows us to quantify things nicely. 
So I'm going to run through my day and tell you exactly how many grams of CO2 equivalent my anti-Valentine's Day cost the planet. I woke up and had a six-minute shower, 500 grams. For breakfast, I enjoyed a milky bowl of porridge with frozen berries, 700 grams, and a nice cup of tea, 53 grams. I washed up being fairly sparing with water, 540 grams. I got dressed and dried my hair, 20 grams. Despite the cold weather at the moment, I left my house, 3 grams due to heat losses during winter. I cycled to work, 0 grams, and I entered through an enormous automatic door, 85 grams. Although I'm a PhD student, today I was actually based in the office rather than the lab. I received 13 emails, 52 grams, and I worked on my laptop for 3 or so hours in the morning. 60 grams for the laptop, plus 150 grams for the servers and networks. I went to the bathroom twice, 8 grams for using the toilet, mainly due to wastewater treatments, 11 grams for toilet roll, and 40 grams for the hand dryer. I ate an apple and a banana, 80 grams each, and I drank about 2 litres of tap water, 0.28 grams. For lunch, I had a medium-sized box of vegetarian, organic and seasonal salad bar deliciousness, 300 grams, and a vegan flapjack, 40 grams. The afternoon was much of the same, emails, 40 grams, working on a laptop, 210 grams, two trips to the bathroom, 59 grams, three litres of tap water, 0.42 grams, plus a three-minute phone call with an annoying salesperson, 57 grams. At the end of the day, I left the building, 84 grams, I cycled home, 0 grams, and I entered my flat, 3 grams. I made a cup of tea, 53 grams, ate two satsumas, 90 grams, and I watched Neighbours, 35 grams. I made a vegetarian risotto for dinner, 500 grams, and washed up, 540 grams. Then I sat down to write a blog post using my laptop, 210 grams. I read a paperback book, 1,000 grams, and I drank two more cups of tea, 106 grams. Also, throughout the day, I received about 18 texts, which is about 0.252 grams in total. I wrote around 30 anti-Valentine's Day texts, 0.42 grams. Also, there's absolutely zero risk of me becoming pregnant tonight, equals zero potential child. This analysis gives a Valentine's Day carbon footprint of 5,710.372 grams of CO2 equivalent, or about 5.7 kilograms. Now let's compare this to someone who fully engages in Valentine's Day, and I mean fully. Let's assume that their day is identical to mine up until entering their flat in the evening. So, minus the 30 anti-Valentine's Day texts, and plus one actual Valentine's Day texts, brings their total to 3,175.966 grams of CO2. Regardless of who buys what for whom, our Valentine's Day celebrator would be directly accountable for the following additional emissions as a result of a romantic evening. Firstly, people in love tend to buy things like cards, 40 grams for one each, 12 red roses, a staggering 25,200 grams if they're grown in a heated greenhouse in the Netherlands, jewellery made of gold and diamonds sweated out of mines in developing countries, 400 grams, and boxes of chocolates. 2,000 grams. Secondly, people often like to make a special occasion of eating fancy food, like asparagus, 3,500 grams if you air freight it from Peru to the UK out of season, steak, 4,000 grams, nice cheese, 1,000 grams, and strawberries, 1,800 grams grown out of season and flown in, or locally grown in a hothouse. They also like to drink fancy wine, 1,500 grams bottles, bottled and transported thousands of miles by road. 
Add in other foods to make it a proper meal, around 2,000 grams. Ironing a shirt, 50 grams. New pair of shoes, 11,500 grams. The washing up, about 1,000 grams, probably because there's more pots and pans needed. Add in an hour on a train to get to their special someone, 7,500 grams. This Valentine's Day celebrator has clocked up a whopping 65,000 grams of CO2, or 65 kilograms of CO2 equivalent of Valentine's Day greenhouse gases. That's more than 11 times my emissions for today. The outlook is even more bleak if one thing leads to another and a baby is produced as a result of a thoroughly enjoyable evening. This situation brings a total to around 373,065 kilogram mark, or around 2 million kilograms if that child is particularly high impact in the carbon dioxide department. That's 400,000 times more carbon intensive than my anti-Valentine's Day day. So, not engaging with Valentine's Day is more than just a lifestyle choice, it's a moral choice. Most of these figures were taken from the book called How Bad Are Bananas? The Carbon Footprint of Everything by Mike Berners-Lee. This episode of The Global Lab was put together by Kaiser Postinen with Oliver Marsh and Anna Plojaski. Thanks also to Ben Bonken from freesound.org for providing the till sound effect.